Hey, it's Sean. Real quick, before we jump in, please remember to subscribe to Some Assembler Required by tapping the follow icon inside the player you're currently listening on. It costs you absolutely nothing, and it's guaranteed to make me smile, which makes your opposable thumbs pretty powerful. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you think might enjoy it too. Some Assembly Required is about matters of the heart and the head. Winnie the Pooh is one of fiction's best-loved characters. The overall theme of Winnie the Pooh is the importance of forming solid, lasting friendships. And with good friends, you will always have someone there to lean on, someone who will go on adventures and expeditions with you, and someone to tackle adversity with. How can we then be more like Winnie the Pooh, I wondered, and establish really strong relationships? And I figured we could ask Shelley Lewin. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I suppose it's not necessarily a, a common uh, association, but would you agree with me that so much of his story has to do with really strong relationships that he can depend on every other character in the Hundred Acre Woods? Absolutely. And I think that that is an integral part of being human is we are psycho, biological, energetic, and social beings, and that social aspect is a huge part of our resilience and well-being. Shelley, you're a certified SACAP counselor, an International Coach Federation member, and accredited professional certified coach, a, a Psych-K master facilitator, NeuroZone facilitator, an Enneagram certified coach, and a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. But prior to racking up all of these accreditations, you worked as an international model in the fashion and beauty industry for a good couple of years. How did you go from that to this? I really enjoyed my work when I was young. That was a lifetime ago. And it was a really wonderful lifestyle. And to travel and explore, I lived and uh, probably 20 countries um, working and traveling. At some point, I would make a suggestion and the director would say to me, we're not paying you for your opinion. We're paying you to smile. Please just be aware of that. And, and I started to realize, oh my goodness me, you know, my thoughts and what I have to say are really irrelevant. If I stay in this industry, well, that's how it's going to be if I continue in this. And I thought, you know what, I actually wanted more. It's not meaningful enough for me. So although it um, ticked the boxes in some aspects, in other aspects, it was completely neglecting. And so I embarked on many different things, actually, uh, studying many different things, trying to figure out what it was that I was going to, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I stumbled across Lifeline, which is counseling. You know, it's a telephone number that you call and I... Um, where if you're in trouble and there's someone to pick up the phone and I just attended their free training that they did and I completely fell in love with the counseling and the training and that was for me when I realized this is the work that I want to do next. That's amazing. Following curiosity and, and ultimately ending up with discovering what your passion uh, would be. If we think back to, you know, our younger years, sometimes we think about those close friendships that we had that we would just laugh for hours and you wouldn't necessarily know why you were laughing, but it just felt so comfortable to be in somebody's presence. Was there a really good relationship for you moving from one country to the next and going from one job to the next 
Can you think of a, a really easy relationship in your past? Well, if we go right back to my childhood, I actually traveled quite a lot as my as a child as well. So, you know, we were originally from uh, Zambia, then we moved to Zimbabwe and, and uh, we immigrated from there. My family then moved to the U.S., then we went to the U.K., so... So I never really had the opportunity to form friendships. And the one solid, consistent relationship I had was with my mom. She has always been like my best friend. So I have two sisters, but they were much older than me and weren't necessarily around or wanted to hang out with me. So there was too much of an age gap for, for me to build a really sort of solid friendship. So yes, they were there and their presence, um, you know, they were always looking out for me, but they weren't like my buddy. And I think because I was very shy and I didn't um, form bonds easily because of that shyness, that um, whenever we moved country, I just had a consistent phone call with my mom. She was my best friend, actually, and still is. Beautiful that there is at least that one relationship that you can um, can rely on. When it comes to internal work that we do on ourselves to feel worthy, do you feel that that's an ongoing process or can we arrive at that feeling? There, there's a point at which you feel more comfortable in your skin. And I would say that Ironically, when I was working as a professional model and I did a lot of doing a lot of sportswear, underwear, lingerie, so I was the body model. And so I was a lot of the time semi-naked or naked, and I was a nudist for a while. And the irony is, is that in all of that, I was probably least uncomfortable in my skin. And only when I moved into doing this work, you know, when I was doing all the studying and the self-reflection and did I realize that it all actually came from a lack of self-worth. And eventually, the more comfortable I became with myself and self-acceptance, the self-acceptance leads to a self-worthiness where you value yourself and who you are and what you're willing to put up with and not willing to put up with and what you say yes to and what you say no to. And I think that you, that the more worth you have, the kinder you are to yourself. And so that is an ongoing process. Life will give you different circumstances, you know, so different circumstances, you will need to determine what does kindness to myself look like in this situation. You know, sometimes when you're in a relationship, you choose what's most kind for your partner or most kind for your child. And sometimes you do take the back seat. So it's not about being self-absorbed and it's all about me. And as long as I'm doing fine, it isn't that. But you can't be doing anything that's going to be detrimental to you. That's not sustainable. So it's fine for you to put yourself second or third or fourth, as long as you're not always second, third or fourth. You know, there have to be times when you are the priority and you need to know when your tank is empty, knowing how much energy you have and how much you have to give out. Because if you aren't taking care of yourself, and I think that the self-acceptance, self-worthiness, self-valuation piece is around giving yourself permission to check in to your tank 
and then saying, right, that's what I need. So much of that resonates and it reminds me of a time I've spoken about on the podcast before where I've gone through burnout and not realized that I need to give myself the attention because I'm quite happy to, yes. to make sure that others are comfortable and that they're taken care of more so than myself. And before we get further into the importance of having a healthy relationship with ourselves, how does the way that we build and maybe evaluate the relationships we have with our colleagues and, and other professionals differ, if at all, to the relationships that we have with our friends or our families or, or, or our intimate relationships for that matter. I work in um, the corporate space as well as a leadership coach. So what happens is, is that I discovered that actually relationships have this dynamic. There are these dynamics at play. So it's around power and who has it. So there are relationships above or vertical relationships. So professionally, that would be your leader or your customer. In your home life, that would be your parents and, you know, uh, all your elders. Relationships to the side are uh, horizontal relationships. Professionally would be your co-workers and your peers. And then your personal life is your partner. And then you have relationships below where you have the power. And that is in your professional life is your direct reports, anyone reporting to you. And in your personal life, it's your children or your dependents, so people that are relying on you. So you have relationships above, to the side and below. And in each of those, you someone has the power. So usually the, the, the relationships above, those people have the power. And um, depending on how they use that power, they are either empowering you or disempowering you. And then relationships to the side, you're either empowering each other or not the same. And if you are uh, the parent or the leader who has direct reports or children, then you have the power. And what tends to happen is when people have the power, they expect obedience and compliance. Unfortunately, that's not going to build a healthy relationship. So people might do it because they respect you until they don't. And essentially what will happen is that you want, instead of compliance and obedience, you want people to collaborate with you and to cooperate with you. And the way that you do that is by empowering them, supporting them, motivating them, guiding them and, and inspiring them. And they will want to follow you then. So a leader is someone who has followers and people will want to follow you if you are supporting, encouraging operating and you want what's best for them. So this plays out in any personal context or professional context. It's about understanding what is the dynamic that's at play. And, and sometimes your relationships to the side and a partnership, a traditional relationship. So when I say traditional old school relationships used to be that um, in many cases, the wife is seen as a dependent where the husband takes care of the wife. She's almost like another dependent, like another child. And so it can very easily slip into that power dynamic where the man is the boss of the home and he determines or dictates how things are going to be. Instead of seeing it as in a relationship of equality. So if it's a relationship to the side, it has to be treated as a relationship where, where we are equal opposites. And as an equal and opposite, I treat you with care and your opinion matters and, and it's um, uh, mutual regard. Not I'm the boss and I decide and you do what I say because I'm wearing the pants and I pay here, you know. So then my, my follow-up question to that was going to be, 
so then what is the foundation of a good relationship? And if I understand what you're saying, it comes down to that mutual respect then and, and building um, the capacity to encourage someone else to, to be the best that they can possibly be. 100%. So I would say that a good relationship is a healthy relationship and it's a quality relationship where both people can thrive. That to me is how I would determine. So, so a relationship should be a springboard or a catalyst for you to become the best version of yourself. And if it isn't allowing that, if it isn't encouraging that or supporting that, it's not a healthy relationship. If we move then to being able to establish said healthy relationship, we may have to talk a bit about uh, shifting mindsets and, and then changing perspectives on things. How do you, Shelley, then as a counselor start to shall we say, unravel those perspectives and and maybe make people more self-aware in order for them to change their their behaviors? So I, I'm a relationship coach. So I just want to make the distinction between a relationship therapist and a relationship coach, okay? So a relationship therapist is predominantly looking at pathology, what's wrong, and we look to the past and, you know, um, how dark is the hole? How deep is the hole? Who put the hole there? Who's responsible? And you spend a lot of time exploring the problem in the past. A relationship coach is looking at things from the present and the future perspective. So you're looking at the solution and the future. What is this preferred future, this desired reality that you'd like to have as a couple? So in this desired reality where we are working as a team and we're a powerful partnership, what does that look like? And if this is where we are now, what is the change that needs to happen to get us moving forward in that direction? Okay. Right. Uh, when I see a couple, the first session, I ask them to describe what that preferred future looks like. What is that miracle relationship or miraculous, powerful partnership, the ultimate dream team? What does that look like? And I, each person gets to describe it. Okay. And then I'd say, so can you rate that? In terms of where you are now, so if that's 10 out of 10, that description, where would you say the relationship moves between at the moment? So what's the envelope of variation? And one partner says it's between a three and a six, and the other one says it's between a four and a seven. So already we have an idea of what we're working with here and how far away we are from that ideal scenario. So what is the habits, the behaviors that your partner is demonstrating that pull you closer to zero? Because we want to stop doing those things. And what are the behaviors that pull you or will draw you closer to 10? So each person takes responsibility to stop doing the things that take you to zero and to start doing the things that take you closer to 10. Then the next time that we meet, we reevaluate what's working, what progress have you noticed? And so we very slowly, it's an iterative process where each couple determine what they need. And obviously I've written a book now, Uncomplicated Love, which is a step-by-step guide for building a thriving relationship if you're interested the unedited version of this episode is available for you to watch and listen to on youtube yeah that's right you can find the link to the some assembly required youtube channel in the show notes you'll also find the link to my free newsletter sean shifted something there too all right back to the audio here's shelly uh there are definitely themes and patterns that have come out when I'm working with couples 
And there seems to be some very specific things. So, for example, um, I talk about relationships as being an art, a science, and a practice. So the art is compatibility. So we are more or less aligned and more or less compatible with someone, depending on who we are and what we need to thrive. Then there's the science. The science is the science of intimacy and love, which is your attachment styles. And so each of us has an attachment style, either a secure attachment style or an insecure attachment style. And that is going to impact how we show up in a relationship. And you will either show up as someone who's needy or someone who is avoidant, which is like uh, they dip their toe into intimacy. So they need space. They need independence and freedom. And then you have a secure attachment, which is someone who feels safe and comfortable in relationship. So I'm always watching and listening for, is this a compatibility thing? Is this a, a um, attachment style thing? And then the last thing is the practices. And that is around partnership. So we either have the partnering ability and the skills to show up as a quality partner or we don't, like in, like in sport. Are you an A-team player or a D-team player? So some people are excellent at communication. So they would be, you know, maybe an A-team player in terms of uh, your ability to communicate. But then they're not very good at um, navigating conflict, for example. So that's these are all skills that are required. So as I go through this process with couples, I'm trying to basically diagnose is the root of their challenge a compatibility issue an attachment style issue or a partnership issue and I really believe that almost all relationships would benefit from doing personal development from taking ownership for yourself and your own relationship with yourself self-acceptance and so that's one of the reasons why I've written the book is because um, I, I really believe that individual personal coaching could be the best couple therapy you will ever get. And so and because many challenges that show up in a relationship are not actually relationship problems between us. It's more that one person has a particular challenge or, uh, you know, one person struggling with communication or one person struggling with anger issues. So it shows up between us, but it isn't actually a relationship problem. It's an individual's issue, which is why I say people are complicated and relationships are not. I should probably tell everybody that I've done an attachment style quiz and I'm looking forward to finding out what my attachment style is. You've just said, though, people are complicated, but you've titled the book Uncomplicated Love. Why that distinction? Love doesn't need to be complicated. You know, one of the biggest cliches in relationships is it's complicated. You know, we just hear about that all the time. It's complicated. And we're like, oh, yeah, sure, it is. It's complicated. We know that. We get that. To me, that's a narrative that you've been telling yourself for a very long time that it's not true. It's unhealthy. It's an un, uh, it's a myth that needs to be broken. And the, the truth is that people are complicated. Relationships are not. Relationships are actually very simple. That's what I'm saying. It's an art, a science, and a practice. And when you get the art, the science, and the practice, and you understand that, then your relationship can flow. So I've spent 20 years trying to figure this out. And that was born from my own wounds because I was completely terrible at relationship. You were? I was terrible. <laughs> the book is weaved with my personal experiences 
and my professional experiences. So I was in many complicated relationships filled with drama, very sort of unsatisfying and unfulfilling relationships. And at some point, I realized maybe the problem is me. And that was when my fiancé left me. I sort of had that realization, maybe I am the common denominator here. And so I embarked on this journey with a coach and doing a huge amount of self-reflection. And that was where this career of mine was born. And that was one of the reasons that I got into counseling as well, is because I was trying to understand myself a little bit better to do to heal myself. As I went into this work, I became my own guinea pig and decided if I can figure this out for myself. And the funny thing was, I remember I did a personality profile assessment at the time and it actually said in the assessment, I would be completely clueless and useless in relationships. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and the reason they said it, because I'm an analyst. And so it said these types of people, obviously, often struggle in relationships because they just don't get them. You know, it doesn't fit into their analytical mind. Relationships don't make sense. And that's what it sure. said in the thing. I was like, you're right. They don't make sense. <laughs> so I then decided I was going to spend the next 20 years trying to make sense of them. <laughs> and that's what, I, that's what I believe that I've done. I've made sense, common sense of relationships and that's why i say people are complicated relationships are actually not uh, you've obviously come to to good conclusions because you've already mentioned that you've been married for many many years so i can only assume that you took your learnings and you turned that situation around that's why i say that i i'm my own social proof <laughs> We've been together for well over 20 years and uh, married for 18. And we have a very solid foundation and a solid friendship and a really great marriage. I often feel life is what you make of it. You know, your external life is a reflection of your internal narratives. A hundred percent. What are some of the more common stories then that you find we are telling ourselves that we build our lives around these narratives that we developed internally that we're now externalizing and we actually need to break those narratives down? What are some of those more common narratives that you that you deal with? A belief is mostly unconscious. So you would have an unconscious belief. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. I don't belong. Or um, I can only rely on me. You know, people are unreliable. People are, un uh, are not, I don't feel safe in relationships. Or um, those sort of narratives are things that you may not necessarily be aware of. In the book, I've got um, some common myths. For example, I've got here, we can't survive without each other. And people think that's romantic when actually we can't survive without each other is codependence and enmeshment. That's not healthy. Mm. The perfect person will complete me and fill any void or emptiness I feel. One half plus one half equals one. And I, the, the realistic narrative for that is there's no perfect person, only a better or worse match. I am whole and complete as I am. One plus one equals three. Compatibility equals shared interests and hobbies. No, compatibility equals absolute freedom to be yourself. Go where you are celebrated, not where you are tolerated. What about this one? My partner is responsible for making me happy. The, con the real realistic narrative, I'm responsible for creating a life that is meaningful and fulfilling to me. 
Once we are married and the deal is sealed, my work is done. Contemporary narrative. Deep connections between people are nurtured when the relationship is consistently prioritized, protected, and revered. And then I'll just share one last one. After I have found the right one, we'll live happily ever after. So I'm looking for the right partner. Realistic is a quality relationship is the reward I get for being a quality, dependable partner. So you wouldn't necessarily see underneath that is these stories of uh, about how we 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 don't take responsibility for ourselves, sure. our well-being, our you know uh, that I've got my back. We put too much emphasis on that other people will come and look after me and take care of me. Maybe the most important relationship we could ever have, and the relationship that should be the easiest is the relationship with ourselves. And we spend so little time investing in that relationship because as you've just highlighted, we're expecting for other people to complete us, for other people to make us happy, for other situations to make our lives that much easier. When in actual fact, we need to do the deep work consistently in each different scenario, relearn how to interact and, and engage with, with the, the cards that are being dealt. If attachment styles are such a big part of our relationships, how we engage, right? You referred to that as, as the science part um, of our relationships and, and part of the book, Uncomplicated Love. What impact does that core belief have on developing an attachment style? Is there anything to say that they're connected in any way? So what happens is, is when you're a child, the first relationship that you will develop as a child is with your caregivers. And so either... That experience will be one where you feel safe and you will associate close connections and bonding as something that makes you feel safe, okay? Or you will experience it as something that is risky and that you feel unsafe in it. So if your parents weren't available for you emotionally, if they sometimes were and sometimes weren't and they were unpredictable and you just sort of never really knew where you stood, you would have an unconscious programming associated with bonding and connection. If you have a healthy association to it, you would, you would recognize, I feel safe in a relationship where there's intimacy and, and I feel, and I can relax and be at peace and ease when I am in relationship with someone because intimacy is not, intimacy is not scary. It's not threatening in any way. There's no risk to me. And so that's secure attachment. But if you didn't have that experience as a, as you grow up and become an adult, you will have, it will kind of fork into one of one or two responses. The one is that you're permanently needing to feel safe, which is this anxious attachment. So anxious attachment is I need my partner to keep telling me that I'm lovable and that I'm that they're not going anywhere. They're not going to abandon me. That So there's a clinginess, a neediness, which is codependence, enmeshment, entanglement. It's like I need to merge with you to feel safe. Or you have the opposite response, which is, that you distance yourself and you want more freedom and more independence. I can rely on me. I only rely on, on myself. You know, other people are unreliable. And so what that means is that you will be uh, permanently 
wanting because you're wired for connection so you'll want the intimacy but you will then when you feel too close to someone there'll be an unconscious threat that this is risky this is risky so then you'll push back so so it it creates this um almost like the person who's in relationship with an avoidant you know when they're all in and then they suddenly disappear then they're all in and then they disappear and so that is an an avoidant uh, so the one prioritizes freedom and independence if it's insecure that's avoidant or safety and closeness and um those are the two responses that you would have Shona can tell you that you landed square in the middle with the score which was secure. Oh really? You do not have a insecure attachment style that you need to be worried about. I was listening to you how you were describing those things and I was like okay I can see some some of my behaviors potentially in in what you're describing and the first thing that came to mind was a friend of mine that used to describe me as an onion because he felt like he had to really peel off all of the layers to get to the deep core of what I enjoyed and feel you know capable of sharing and really let myself be myself um okay so it takes you a while to build the intimacy so. so you you really need to trust completely before before you surrender into into that relationship where that vulnerability and vulnerability is a big piece here so when it comes to attachment styles The thing that each individual needs to do is have capacity for vulnerability. Okay. If you are someone who is avoidant, you have very little capacity for vulnerability. You don't want to feel vulnerable. You don't want to put yourself it's too risky, you know. So so you have very little capacity where and um whereas if you are um anxious you so you you need you're willing to be vulnerable you're willing to to take the risk because you really need someone to be to tell you all the time how amazing you are or how lovable you are so it's around capacity for intimacy and that's vulnerability and that's why vulnerability is and you know there are many profound people um Brené Brown and mm. loads of people that have written and spoken so much about vulnerability as a is not a weakness it's a strength yeah yeah and Brené in fact i remember an interview she did a while back uh, where she mentions much similar to what you were saying earlier about partnership and she speaks very much about if you walk into the room and your capacity is only at 20% then i'm stepping in and i go cool i've got 80 don't worry i'll carry us through this and that's how we make the 100% um but if we're both only at 20 and we can't make up the 100 we need to sit down and decide how exactly are we going to get ourselves to be that 100% and and to get through whatever the situation is um and i like that explanation very much and as you quite rightly say from a capacity building standpoint and understanding what you're capable of handling in any one situation does set you up for handling your relationship well if for argument's sake let's say my wife or my partner is the opposite of that how would that show up what would that look like so what's quite common is that you will have an anxious and avoidant or actually it often attracted to each other and that's often defined by power struggles So if there's a lot of power struggles in the relationship then we know that we're definitely working with insecure attachment that's okay. one of the ways in which I recognize it but if you are um so so that might be less so in the case where one person 
has a secure attachment. And, and it's often just around the person who's insecure, depending on which insecure attachment style they have. So that remember the one is that they, they, they're trying to avoid intimacy and the other one is needing it all the time. And so it will show up in different ways, but I have this visual vesica Pisces, you know, I don't know if you're aware of that Venn diagram with two circles that overlap with the little space in between. And so I use that image and in fact, um, it's, it's a common, it's an image that I use consistently throughout the book. So there's a circle, which is me, a circle, which is you. And then there's the space in the middle, which is the us space. And so what happens is when the circles are, are overlapped in an equal balance, then there's this healthy us. So your identity is very much around um, your well-being and the relationship's well-being. But when you have circles that are completely merged, then the us completely becomes the identity of the individual. So I'm listening for how that person communicates. Do they see themselves as separate or do they see the relationship as part of their identity? You know, so someone who has a secure attachment style can see there's a me and there's an us versus the us. If the us isn't going well, I can't be, I can't have a good day. I can't go to work and just focus on work. Like my whole life becomes consumed when the us is, is bent out of shape. They're unable to separate themselves from the us. And then the other would be that there's indifference. So if you have an avoidant, then the circles are sort of pulling apart from each other. And in that case, that person almost is indifferent, couldn't really care less if the relationship isn't going that well because they're sort of disconnected from it, almost waiting for it to fall apart because, oh, well, that's what happens, you know, I can only rely on me. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it depends on what the combination is of the couple. Okay. And and then with attachment styles, they're indicating a person's capacity for intimacy. But then clearly based on that, it can affect your other relationships, as you say, if you're uh, if you're thinking that, you know, you're only worthy because your relationship is stable um, or conversely, that's going to carry over into your other relationships when you go to work. It does. But what's very interesting is that you you can have different attachment styles in different Okay. Your relationships in work, you can have a secure attachment, and 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 but in your home environment, an insecure. So it's not a universal that applies to all relationships. And in fact, there is a website that you can go and um, take the test, and it will show you the different relationships where you fall. It doesn't go through in all contexts. So I'm working specifically when I'm working with couples on how they show up in, a, in their intimate relationships. Fascinating. Um, and relationships are so integral to everything that we do. I can only encourage more people to send more time on figuring themselves out and then entering relationships from a healthy perspective. Because from what you're saying, Shelley, it just gets that much better if we consider ourselves first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say, you know, every person when you leave school, you should know your attachment style and, and, and what the impact of that is going to be. Your attachment style is not set in stone. It's not concrete. So I was avoidant. Mm. 
And that was my attachment style. That's why my fiance left me. <laughs> so I was behaving badly. And, you know, every relationship that I was going into, I was the common denominator. And that would have continued unless I took ownership for that and took a look in the mirror and said, okay, what is going on? <laughs> what, you know, what, what, is, what am I doing and why am I behaving this way? And I identified, okay, so this is my attachment style that I'm dealing with. Now, how do I fix that? And it's around, you first have to have awareness. So awareness of what are we dealing with here? Okay. Once you have an awareness, then it becomes a choice. When you're not aware, when you don't know that you don't know, mm -hmm. you can't choose something different because it just falls, it's not on your radar. So you don't even know that you're doing something wrong. But when you are aware, then you have choice yeah. about what you're going to do next time. And then you can, with choice, then you can practice. So you can choose instead of running away or instead of don't leave me, you're not leaving, I'm locking the door, you're not going anywhere. Like you, you choose a different behavior and a different response in that moment and you keep choosing a different one and you keep choosing a different one. And then with practice, you get to mastery. So my, my sort of pathway for any shift is first awareness, then choice, then practice, then mastery. And so the awareness piece, that is a big part of what this book is all about, actually, is that I do believe it's, it should be required reading. That was what someone else said to me that read it recently, and that was the feedback they gave to me. That, and that's probably the best compliment that I've ever had. And this person, he's a coach, and he said, you know, this should be required reading because there's so much that I didn't know that I didn't know. And so I was like, well, exactly. Is it a surprise then why we have such complicated relationships? When they could actually be uncomplicated love. And as you quite rightly said, there's an art, there's a science, and then there's the practice. And I know, Shelley, you'll agree with Rumi who said, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers with yourself that you have built against it it's wonderful absolutely it's such a beautiful quote thank you so much for your time it's been such a rad conversation i've really appreciated this this has been um, eye-opening and and i do hope many people uh, go out and purchase the book so that it has become um something that's on their on their bookshelf that they can reach out for every now and again when they're feeling a little complicated themselves <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> Shelley lewin lives in cape town with her husband nate her son pierce and their burmese cat beanie if you're curious to know what your attachment style is, I have included the survey link in the show notes, as well as more information on Shelley's coaching practice and her book, Uncomplicated Love. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Assembly Required. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the follow button inside the app that you're listening on right now. And go ahead, share it with your podcast listening friends. I personally think we can all use a reminder to work on our internal dialogue and the relationship that we've developed with ourselves. And this could be that reminder. You'll find links to the Some Assembly Required YouTube channel, my Instagram account, as well as my free newsletter, Sean Shifted Something, in the show notes. I'd really like to see you subscribe and follow along. My name is Sean Lewitz, and this is Some Assembly Required. See you soon.